Amen. Please turn your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles available out in the foyer out here. Uh, please take one and keep it. Um, if, you, if you need a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. You can open up your, your, your Bible on your phone. Although I realize, like, now that we have the balcony, like, if you're surfing on your phone and all those things, like, you know, you got people up top who are watching. <laughs> parents, parents, use that to your advantage, I think. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 27 through 32 today. Um, I want to mention a couple things. Uh, junior worship is meeting, so uh, children age 3 and 4, um, if you'd like to go to room 134 uh, that has uh, started, you're welcome to, to go be part of that. For those of you who helped with the Festival of the Arts, thank you. Um, if you were not here last night, you know this room was a, basically an art gallery, and so I know a lot of you stayed late in order to get it set up for this morning, so thank you for spending that effort, extra effort to make all that happen, and to Jonathan and Veronica uh, for making Festival of the Arts happen, and all the other uh, team, thank you so much. Uh, for Pastor Doug, a number of you will ask about that, and Pastor Doug you know, continues to grow weaker and weaker day to day, um, but his hope continues to be in the Lord, and he continues to look upward towards Christ, and, and that is his hope. He's had a number of visitors over the last week, of which he is appreciative of that, and as he looks to these days ahead, I know he looks forward to resting and, and um, spending time with his family. So do please keep him in prayer. And as I'm sure he's watching, Pastor Doug, we love you and we're praying for you and Mary Jane as well and your whole family. So um, you are in our prayers. Uh, Matthew 5 and starting in verse 27, we'll read through verse 32. This is God's word. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. May it his blessing to the reading of it. Would you pray with me? Father, as we um, enter into this text, God, we know that we come into weighty and serious things Father, such important things for our life, such important things for our world, important things of holiness and coming before you. And, and so, God, would your Holy Spirit be our teacher? Would you teach us in your word? Would you lead us into truth, Father, things that we need? Father, things that stabilize, things that guide, Father, and that as we know these things, you'd help us to walk in them. Give us grace as we look in this and help us, most of all, to see Jesus as we look in this text and to see that, how he provides all that we need. Father, we look to you in all these things, praying in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a little context as we go through our passage today. This, we are in the series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus is taking his followers, his disciples, through a pattern of what it looks like to follow him. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, and how does that affect every part of our lives? 
And as we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we saw you know, a, a lengthy, what I look at as a really lengthy introduction, but he gives this really nature of what it is and the attitudes uh, that, that his followers develop and cultivate in, in their lives. And then we saw the one who said that he didn't come to abolish the law, to take away God's rules, but rather to fulfill them. And by fulfilling them, we see not only would he do everything that was required for them, but he would also uh, show us, you know, what personal holiness means before God and, and to help us to see the, the nature of the heart and the place of the heart in terms of our obedience to his commands. And so he started off in talking about anger and, and, and violence towards others. And immediately in his second specific instruction, which is where we end up today, he deals with adultery. And more than that, with getting at the source of adultery, and that is the lust of the heart. As we look at a passage, this is a very relevant passage as we consider our world that we live in today. I mean, we live in a world that is consumed with sex, there's an obsession with it to the point that it has just become perverse. In a room like this, with this many people, we know that there is uh, hurt that comes from these areas. There's frustration in these areas, that there are many who struggle in, in these parts. And we need grace and a pattern of life to see what it is that Jesus calls us to. God has designed human sexuality as a beautiful thing, a, a thing that is useful and good for his people. It is that way if it is used within the bounds, uh, the lawful and moral bounds of marriage. And yet, you know, we see that sinful humanity has profaned and twisted God's design um, away from its original and, and really ultimately using it for selfish purposes. We've gone so far away from his perfect design. With the proliferation of internet and the pornography, the spread of provocative images, the conversation that is all around us on these things, there is almost nothing that is covered up anymore. There's so little that is discreet. It's available to all. It comes to our homes. It assaults our children, even the youngest ages. As a culture, we have gone so far from God's design, and we've reveled ourselves in it. We need revival. We need restoration. If we're searching for truth and the torrent of falsehoods that are around us, it's going to be like searching for a needle in a haystack. I imagine that no other moral matter has been so twisted and at the same time so frequently discussed as sex, and it's multiplied our problems to an extreme level, and what we need is God's word. We need God's word to right us. We need God's word to stabilize us. And so we don't start with worldly wisdom, but we come into the word of God. We come into the pattern that he set before us inside of the scripture, and that brings us to Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' words. His first words you see here are, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. The law of God is plain. Adultery is, is forbidden, strictly forbidden. If you were to ask someone what the Ten Commandments were, I said this a couple weeks ago, and I said again, most people couldn't name them, but if they're going to name one, they'd probably say don't kill somebody, and maybe number two would be don't commit adultery. I don't know, I'm guessing. Sometimes I wonder, but maybe that's overly optimistic. And Jesus, he, he affirms that truth. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that way he's going to go deeper into it. 
But it's important just to pause upon this command because he does affirm the truth of it. The truth of this command, you should not commit adultery, is built upon God's design for marriage. And adultery is just striking at the very heart of God's design. And what Jesus does is he builds his teaching on what God has already revealed in the scripture. And so what I want to do for the next few moments is to go back to the beginning and we see God's design of marriage. And we see how Jesus' words interact with that original creation of, of man and woman and the testimony of good that we see in the scripture. So if you want to, you could turn all the way back to Genesis. We'll look at a, a, a brief overview of this because we could turn to Genesis 1, 27 and 28 and see God creating Adam and Eve and calling them to take dominion over all the earth. We see this in verse 27. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see not only the creation of Adam and Eve in God's image, but we also see the purpose for which he created them to take dominion over the earth. In other words, to be God's representatives in this planet, to care for all the resources and all of creation um, as, that, as being physically here and, and doing that. We see a picture in this call to have dominion, that there is untapped potential, which is all over our planet. And God, in putting Adam and Eve in this place, are telling them to take out that potential, to do the work that would be for, uh, for uh, man's prosper prosperity, for their prosperity and all their descendants after them, and to do it as a reflection of God's own care for that planet, God's own work. As he's already um, built the, um, made the earth over six days, and here we see him commanding Adam and Eve to continue that work in the things that they do. The world that we live in may look chaotic, but in truth we see that there is untapped potential that is there, and we have that responsibility and opportunity to take dominion. Now if we flip over to Genesis chapter 2, we see the story of creation, and the story of creation is given to us in more detail. And we see it, the starting off of the creation of Adam without Eve. We could look at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 5. We read this, when no bush the field was yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up. We might say, why are there no bushes in the field? Why are there no small plants? Well, after the hyphen, it tells us why. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So there's no cultivation because there was no man to do that cultivation. So God created Adam. He made him alive in this, in this special creative act and, and then gave him a special work to do. You can see it down in verse 15. Uh, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God calling Adam, putting him in this place in the garden, cultivate that potential, bring out that potential um, in the earth. Now it was obvious that as Adam was there doing this work that he could not do it alone. And needed a helper to do it. And a special partnership was necessary to make it happen. And we look down at verse 18. 
We read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The work of taking dominion, the work of that garden, working and keeping it, was too great for one person alone. Um, And that is the truth even before uh, sin came into the world. Adam needed a helper to be successful in working the garden and in keeping it. His success was dependent on that right helper to be there and coming in. And that's where we see the helper that God provided. This is providing that first woman, Eve, and we see this in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam describes his wonder at this helper that God has provided. He names her. He, he even commits himself uh, to her. We see it in verse 24 where we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so with this first couple, the pattern is set. Each family has its own family structure, has its own independence uh, from previous generation. This is God's creation plan. And in it, we see something which is uh, at one sense intimate and another sense very practical. We see the practicality of it, right? That there is a bond together for the work that they needed to do together. The garden is too much for Adam to do on his own. He needs Eve in order to do it uh, with him for success. There's something very practical about this union they have together. But there's also something intimate which is there. And we see it in the very words that Adam uses. And intimacy is not always practical. But it's important. Because we see that emotional and the spiritual bond that happens between the man and the woman. The spiritual bond. They become one flesh together. That's what we read. There's something intimate in that. And so we see God's plan for them to become one flesh. That's God's original design. You might wonder what does it mean to be one flesh. And certainly it means a physical union that's there, but it means more. It's a spiritual union. One that uh, brings together two together in a shared purpose in life. A shared vision for the future. And a commitment to the good of each other and the accomplishment of that vision. They're working towards something, but they're working towards it as one together, with a vision under God for a place of service to God together, and really seeking to see the blessing of each other inside of that place. And so that that union, that marital union, becomes a context for an intimate spiritual connection that they're supposed to have. So to be one flesh is to be intimate. Adam and Eve, we saw the safety in their intimacy as we look in verse 25, where we read, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not afraid to share themselves completely. They did not feel the need to hold themselves back for self-protection. They were trusting. They were vulnerable. They were with a trustworthy partner. They did not live selfishly, so did not come in the world. They were willing to accept each other, to help each other, to work together to one's goal and not to live self, selfishly. They were, self, they were safe with each other. Without sin, they knew they could 100% be open, vulnerable, and things would be okay. 
And this is one of those ideals that has been lost as sin has come into the world. What happens after sin enters the world, but they cover themselves up. They're no longer uh, safe with that other person. In fact, because they're no longer a safe person themselves. Now they're living selfishly for themselves, and, and that creates a division between them. But yet there's something within us that wants to get back there. There's something within us that wants a, a partner to be vulnerable with, to be open with, to know acceptance, to forge a life together. You know, that's important. On the other side, there's the unwillingness often to take that risk because we know how people can hurt us. We know the risk of trusting others. That's why marriage is so important because we take away that fear of that shame. It's what it's supposed to be anyways. And we can create a place where we can accept each other for where we are right now. We can be accepted for where we are right now without the other person running away. And we made a vow that keeps us together. We become one flesh. God's work in that, in that vow, in binding them together. God creating something new in that marriage bond. And so with that acceptance then in place between this man and this woman, we can begin to grow and become more what God designed us to be so we can experience greater intimacy, courage in facing the future, help in doing the, the mission that's before us. It's critical to see that God is the one who makes this marital union, this one flesh union. He does it through the vows. He does it through union. We see this in Jesus' words in Matthew 19.6, where Jesus says, For they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not, let not man separate. And we see an important principle here. What God has joined together, God is the one who has made them into one. There is a spiritual union between the two. And so what happens uh, to the one cannot but affect the other. It will affect the other person. To be one flesh means that one person suffers, the other suffers. One is lost in death, the other stands broken and hurts. If the union is dissolved for whatever reason, both are negatively affected. But there's also a reality that they can forge a life together, to bless future generations together, to rejoice together, to grow together, serve God, to find meaning, purpose together. Because of this one flesh union, they work together, they prosper together. And that's why they need to be committed to the good of one another. For one spouse to hurt the other is a self-inflicting wound. Shouldn't hurt ourselves, right? Yet people often hurt their spouse in marriage, and they hurt themselves in doing so. This should not be so. We're called to help our spouse to thrive, as if it's helping us to thrive, because it is helping us thrive. We're one flesh together. Helping our spouse improves the health of that one flesh union, and we do better. That's why love and kindness, patience and peace are so important. And so in the Bible, we look in Genesis, we see in Matthew, we see God's monogamous design. One man, one woman being committed to one another for life. And so we remember that as we go through this passage of Jesus' words. Now in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it makes it clear that singleness can also be used for good. That if, that if singleness is devoted for God, it is good. In God's eyes is equally valuable state to be in when it's lived by faith and it can be purposefully used for his kingdom. And there are plenty of examples that we can look at in the scriptures. We see it in Jesus' life. We see it in Apostle Paul's life. We see it in a number of the apostles' life. We see it in passages in 1 Corinthians 7. And so 
you know, I'm affirming that there is value, which is stated very clearly in the Bible, uh, towards uh, that life when it is lived by faith in devotion to God. It is, it is a good thing. But that's another sermon. It's just not for this sermon particularly. Because we're just connecting this, what Jesus says here in Matthew 5, with what God's creative design is. So, from the book of Genesis, we the marriage is grounded in God's design. It's a gift to God in the world. And then it helps us as we think through patterns that are set for men and women as they move towards that time of marriage, especially you know, young men, young women. Uh, Genesis sets this pattern for men and women. If we look at Genesis, we see as a, as a boy grows up to be a man, he must develop the, the skills to fulfill a calling. And as he does that, to keep his eye open for God's provision of, of a wife to help him fulfill that calling. And a pattern for a girl as she grows in a woman is cultivating those skills that support a family calling. And if that chance appears to marry a man who's calling that that, that she can support. And so you have two people. I often like the illustration of two people running along, and they're rolling, running along, and hopefully up ahead is Jesus. And they're looking at Jesus, following Jesus' call in their life. And as they're running this race along, you know, pursuing his calling in them, they begin to look around, and they see, oh, look, she's over there, or he's over there, and they're, they're, they're running that same direction. We're moving the same direction. And, and they say, hey, do you want to run together? And that's where they're bound together in marriage and pursuing Christ together. You know, but we're the people who need to be going somewhere, doing something, especially in pursuing after God. When a man and a woman are married then, they build a life together under God around a calling, growing a family to continue the work of God in this world. And we need to understand that it is a good calling. There's a way of thinking in the world today that says, don't worry about family Get an education, get a job, make some money, learn to take care of yourself, don't get married. And any of those things, you know, there, there may be good things to do in preparation for it. But this attitude that we see so often fails to see the greater calling of marriage to family and to children. It fails to see the purpose of these things. It fails to see God's greater design. And I've heard the stories of regret of pursuing the wrong things for too long. It's a major issue today. I, I read an article this week about the declining uh, fertility in so many nations around the world and the crisis that it means for nations around the world. And, and too few children are born to, re- to replace the older people who are, who, are, who are dying. And as I just look at some of the, the multitude of reasons that are there, and it's a complicated thing, but the single big, big, biggest reason that I see people don't have kids anymore is because ultimately they don't think it's good for them to have kids or many kids, or enough kids. It just, there's a goodness thing. The good life is not, doesn't have kids in it. It's what more and more people all around the world seem to be thinking. And in the same way, the decrease in marriage statistics here shows people simply don't think marriage is good anymore. People think that marriage can be put away. But it's contrary to God's revealed design for human well-being. We see it plainly stated inside of Genesis. It misses God's design. God's design that's worked for thousands of years. And as that design is rejected, the blessing of it goes along with it. There's another bigger purpose that God has given to marriage. Marriage is given to show the relationship of Christ and his church. If you look over in Ephesians chapter 5, we see where this is so plainly stated. Ephesians chapter 5, especially verses 22 through... 
27. We'll read this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so with that, you know, we see God's intention, this one flesh union of, of leadership and support, of vision and fruitfulness, of mutual care, all showing something about that relationship between Jesus and his church and, and, and how Jesus initiates with the church and how the church responds to Christ's leadership and his call. You know, this is something I'm going to focus on a little bit more next week. We'll stay in Matthew 5 a little bit longer. But it's important context for, for Jesus as he leads the church for her spiritual good. And the church responding to that and taking on his mission and call in obedience to his word and the Great Commission. All right, so with all that context, we come back to Matthew chapter 5. And we see Jesus' words in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And we see why it's forbidden. Adultery is this violation of the union that God has made. Adultery is a violation of the image of God. It's a violation of the image of the love of Christ and his love for the church. It's a disregard of the command to be fruitful and multiply. Instead, it focuses on personal satisfaction. It sets aside the instruction to work the ground and cultivate it. And instead, it creates chaos and division just for the sake of pleasure. And it is a violation of God's design. It breaks Jesus' words to let man not separate what God has put together. Breaking what God has made, it's a violation of the marital bond between two people. And instead of moving towards that intimacy, it pulls away. Adultery threatens God's call to vocation, the call to cultivate the ground and to bring order and energy out of the world. Instead of putting energy into building a better world or God's kingdom, adultery, and any other sexual sin, it puts us into expending our energies into selfish pursuits instead of the good of others, instead of God's glory, instead of the mission that God has before us. And so the message is that one woman is enough for one man, and one man is enough for one woman with a mission that was set before to the glory of God, and that is enough. For men... The marriage is part of that garden they're called to cultivate. They're calling to have a family, to see each member of that family thrive, including their wives, and that takes energy. They need to be devoted to, not spending their energies everywhere. A man cannot serve God and be involved in sexual sin. Adultery drains energy from the work of God, the things that he has for them. The call of a man is to make his marriage all that it can be, and women have a calling as a helper to that one man, and they cannot be the helper God has called them if their attention is diverted. We have a duty to do what we can to increase intimacy and trust so we can work out God's vision inside of our marriage. And so marriage has problems. I mean, we do what we can to address those problems, right? It's part of cultivating the garden that God has planted us in. But escaping through sexual sin is never the right answer. Adultery is that betrayal, that one flesh union. And that's why it just hurts so much. It's just a, it's a ripping away a part of us. It's an open wound to our body. Breaking one flesh union is so painful 
that Jesus, when he talks about adultery, right after it, he talks about divorce, and he makes a connection that's helpful for us to see. Right? If you jump down to verse 31, Matthew 5, 31, Jesus goes on, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so we see here that uh, sexual morality, like adultery, is such a grave violation against marriage that it becomes a legitimate biblical justification of divorce. Adultery is one of the great reasons that marriage is in a divorce. It just heaps sin upon sin. It's a violation of marital vows that it leaves a faithful spouse free to divorce without any violation of God's design. They don't have to divorce, and there can be great reconciliation, praise God, but it becomes morally permissible to do so. God does not require staying in a marriage when adultery exists. So we take from Jesus' word that no marriage should get to that point. Nothing should be done to violate that one flesh union. Ungodly conditions in a marriage separate people from one another. Adultery, abandonment, violence, neglect, withdrawal, other selfishness. The resulting divorce is a final giving up in that situation. And Jesus takes it so seriously because it's so destabilizing. Sins within marriage destabilize everyone. And divorce, even when it's necessary or justified, it destabilizes children, communities, churches, and nations. Instead of cultivating family, calling together, both are left to fend for themselves. So again, nothing is to be done that strikes at this one flesh union that God has established. Let no one take apart what God has brought together. All right, so that's a really lengthy background to Jesus' main point, verse 28. Because he doesn't just forbid adultery, he forbids the preconditions that lead to adultery. And he does it by addressing lust. Lust is that precondition of adultery. Right? Before anyone commits adultery, lust is a sin that leads the pathway there. Verse 28, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He deals with the sin of the heart. Man cannot simply say, I'm a faithful person. I mean, I've never committed adultery. I mean, it can't hurt to look, can it? I mean, as long as I've never done anything about it, I'm okay, right? Well, Jesus gets right to the heart of the problem when he talks about lust. Now, the words he uses here, lustful intent, they convey the, the planning of a mind to meet a woman, to develop some sort of relationships with her. It's really a work of the imagination, at least, you know, where it's bouncing around the imagination to think of what ifs and how could I and would it be possibles or, you know, just imagine this. But it points to something really insidious inside of every one of us whether we feel like this applies to us or not. It's a sin that is common to every one of us, and it's a sin of envy and the sin of discontent. And we know the commandment not to commit adultery. That is the, the, one of the Ten Commandments. It's the seventh one. But we don't forget the tenth, where it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's coveting. And envy is a rejection of God's gift to us, a failure to recognize God's provision for us. And isn't that where lust ultimately leads us? Being discontent with our own situation, being content, discontent with what we lack, being envious of what belongs to someone else, is being discontent with our own marriage, wanting what God does not have for us. 
Lust is discontent with our own spouse and enviously wanting a woman or man who God has not given to us. And when we put it that way, we realize how close it can be. Do we get discontent? Do we speak to our spouse in a way showing we wish they were not the way that they are? As Jesus deals with male lust here, it reminds us of the problem of lust. God has not given that other woman in your life. I mean, if you're married, he has given you another wife. If she's married, she's another man's wife. Even if you're single, she's not yours. In marriage, you have no right to act as if she was, even inside of your own mind. One of the great problems with lust is how it objectifies another person. And that's the problem with pornography. It objectifies people through images. It treats them as an object instead of an image of God, instead of being a real person with real feelings within the context of real relationship. You know, that person who's pictured there is someone's daughter, friend, maybe someone's future spouse. And yet pornography objectifies them to the point there's no relationship It makes a claim on another person where there's no right to do so. We must not objectify others. They're image bearers of God. But also remember that envy is not just a male sin. It is an equal opportunity temptation. Women can be discontent in their own marriages. They can be discontent in singleness. And while men may base a lot of their lust on youth and beauty, women can grow discontent about other matters. They can hope they're wish they were married to someone else. In this way, we remember that lust is an equal opportunity temptation for all. It might look different, but when it shows up, it shows our desire to have what is not ours. And that discontent and envy leads both men and women into sin. It plays in the imagination. It plays in the behavior, like of pornography use, of bitterness, of complaining, neglect. Whatever strikes the sanctity of marriage or the marriage covenant, it's a violation of this command. And so Jesus tells us what to do with it. And we see that in verses 29 and 30. He shows how seriously we should take his words on this. Look at verse 29. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go in to hell. Right, no quarter. No quarter to sin in our life. We deal with when it's small. We deal with it in serious ways. If you are in, if you, your phone is a temptation, you stop using a phone, get a dumb phone. If the internet is, is a place of temptation, get some filtering, accountability software, or get rid of the computer. If you're given to envy and discontent, get an accountability partner. We'll pray for you, challenge your attitude and your behavior. If you're prone to get in debt, cut up your credit cards. Does does alcohol cause you to stumble? Get rid of it 100%. Do you sin watching television? Get rid of the streaming. You know, you're voluntarily bringing that into your home. Does social media cause you to neglect things that you have to do? Shut it down. I mean, people may think it is strange. They may think it's backwards or extreme. But Jesus shows us here. There's no too much of an extreme Solution. I mean, he's talking about cutting off your hand and gouging your eye. Of course, he's speaking figuratively. But his point is there's no too extreme measure to deal with sin in our lives. We know that Jesus is speaking figuratively here. And part of why he's doing it is showing how big of a problem that we have. Because what were to happen if you were to gouge out your eye or cut off your arm? Are you still going to have a sin problem? And the answer is yes. 
And why? Because where does sin take residence? It's in our heart. And here's a question for you. Can you get rid of your heart? Gouge it out, cut it off? No. I mean, you're, you're dead at that point. But that's exactly what he's saying. There is a sense we need to die to ourselves. We need to die to sin. In fact, we need a new heart. And this is the promise of the new covenant. This is the promise of what Jesus Christ does for us uh, through the covenant of grace. He gives us a new heart. We see this promise in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, verse 26, where we see God says, I will give you a new heart and new spirit I will put into you. He's going to take out our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh that's responsive to the word of God. One that loves what is pure and good, as Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it's a heart that hungers after us right and good rather than the sinful lusts of our hearts. And then as a result, what will we do? But we will see God. How do we have that new heart? We have to come to Christ. He is the one who gives us a new heart. He is the one who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If you want to turn there, 1 John 1, 9 at the end of your Bible. If you don't, maybe you already have it memorized. It's a good one to memorize. 1 John 1, 9. But it shows what we need from Jesus. And it shows what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. There he is, dying on the cross, bearing the sins of his people, bearing their lusts uh, on the cross to take them off of them. Killing that sin. And we see him raising up from the dead. And as he rises from the dead, we know that everyone who believes in him, their sin is gone and the raise a newness of life that those old sins, those old habits, those old patterns don't have to continue with them. They walk in newness of life. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So that's great. Sins are taken away. I'm forgiven. I can, you know, that God will accept me. But we see the next part. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That power which may have been there, that is what Jesus eradicates in our life. And so how is it that we see sin have less power in our lives, especially these habitual sins, especially these gripping sins, especially these sins we seem to keep repeating? We go to Jesus and we see him as beautiful. We see God's design as beautiful. And as we keep our eyes on him and we continue to pray and we continue to be part of God's people, worshiping him and seeking him together, we, we pray that God would weaken the effect of sin in our lives, weaken the power in our lives, help us walk in newness of life and fall after him. That the power of those sins, that it decreases in its, in its power over us. So in the meantime, what do we have to do short term? You know, we're getting rid of our phone, we're cutting off the internet, you know, we're getting accountability, we're providing filtering, you know, whatever it is that we have to do in the short term and in the long-term plan, we're saying, God, would you be the one who changes my heart, help me fall more in love with Jesus, help me to see him for all his glory, help me to see him as being sufficient, help me to see heaven as my hope, heaven as my destination. I don't wanna be in hell, I don't wanna be away from you, I want to know you and I wanna see you. God, would you give us a new heart. God, would you give me a new heart? And the good promise of God is that he would do this. This is why Jesus came. And so when we see these words here, cut off your arm, gouge out your eye, yeah, it is talking for extreme measures when it comes to your behavior. Consider that. But more than that, it is a point or two, your need of a new heart and the heart that Jesus provides by his grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we 
uh, do thank you for this glorious design that you have shown us in creation. Your love for us, it is pure and it is true and it is good. Father, you have a design and a purpose in our relationships and yet we have too often replaced your design with our own lusts and our own personal interests. Father, you have called us to be pure. Father, to be pure in heart and mind. And that is only gonna happen if you renew us by your word and by your spirit. We ask, God, that you would overwhelm us with such a vision for your glory that in knowing you, we would find singleness of heart and mind that we need to dwell on the things that are true and the things that are beautiful and the things that are good. We ask you to help us that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is our first 